Welcome back to SEL Convergence. Today's conversation with Tom and Dr. Yvonne Kay is equal parts history, empowerment, and understanding what children really know and feel. Tom, take us away. Mike, thanks so much. And thank you, everybody, for being with us. I am overjoyed to have one of my dearest friends with us. You're going to learn so much tonight, my friends. Please, please, please bring your ears and bring your heart to Dr. Yvonne Kay. Yvonne, welcome. Thank you, Tom. This is really a joy, a pleasure to be with you and to talk about things that we've done for a long, long time. A long time. And, and your wisdom and your experience as somebody who works in the field of mental health, works in the field of the addictions, has done countless professional development programs in education. Uh, your voice and your wisdom is so important that, that all of my friends listening tonight get a chance to hear you. So I'd like you to start not professionally, but if you could go back personally. So uh, folks, Yvonne was a child in World War II. I just want you to pause for that for a minute, because for, for many of you here, it's a, it's a long history lesson. But I want you to really, really bring your heart and bring your mind to what Yvonne has to share with us tonight. So Yvonne, you're a child. Is it in London or, or a neighboring city? Uh, no, I'm a Londoner. But actually, it all started just before my sixth birthday. Okay. And the whole family was away on holiday in Canterbury, a place just outside Canterbury in Kent. <clears throat> and then the news came through that the war had started. Um, and my family just up and left me there. No explanation, nothing. They left you in Canterbury? Yep. And they all went back to London. And I stayed there for six months. And I just made myself ill so that I had to go back to London. Now, in the beginning, in 1939, it started September 5th, 1939, they called it the phony war because there wasn't much going on with bombing or anything like that. But when it came to 1940, that was a whole different story. We were bombed, 40, 41, 42, we were bombed night and day. And sometimes the best way to describe it is to imagine 9-11, mm. day and night, for that period of time. For three years. Yes. So 14 members of my family went straight into combat, and uh, one was taken prisoner by the Japanese, and... Three went to Dunkirk and two came back. Mm. But the others, I can, I, I mean, I've even got them on my phone. <laughs> I think about them all the time, what heroes they were. Uh, and they volunteered. That was it. For me, it was terrifying. There was a um, bomb called the V2. And what happened is you'd hear the German planes coming over and then you'd hear silence and then a whistling and then mm. wham. Mm. And uh, we had a little dog called Brownie and Brownie would run under the table 20 minutes before the planes came because wow. they're super sensitive, these animals. 
they know. Mm. Um, my mother would not go to a shelter. So we would go down into the cellar um, when, the, when the bombing started. And then the horror of being evacuated, that mm. was awful because I come from a family of secrets. So nobody talks and nobody says anything. Oh, that's how it was when I was a child. So I just had a label, which I still have, that was put on my jacket and was given a little suitcase, put on a bus with school. Nobody said goodbye, what was gonna happen, nothing. So mm. I remember being in this bus and just, I really believe at that time, that's when I shut down. I didn't want to feel anything because I was powerless. Mm -hmm. nothing I could do. And when the bus pulled up, this tall, silver-haired man came up to the bus and he pointed to me and said, I'll take that one. Wow. And there are evacuees who've written books called, I'll take that one. Mm. So we had to go and be registered, and it was in place, a very small village called Highbridge in Somerset. Um, and it was a beautiful place, but I didn't know anything. And the real horror started. They were very devout Baptists. Mm. In fact, they lived right across the road from the church. And then they found out I was Jewish. And I remember the children running after me in the village, touching my head because they thought I had horns. And uh, they didn't touch the rest of me, or even though they thought I had a tail, because that's, I mean, they'd never met anyone. I'm half, I'm half English, half Irish, I'm half Jewish, half Irish Catholic, but I didn't know that until I was 21 years old. So I was raised in that religion. And finally, I again made myself so ill that they had to get my mother, well, they had to put me on the train to go back. And I remember getting off the train in London at Waterloo Station, and my mother forgot to pick me up. Oh, my. So I was eight years old. Mm. Thank God the London police are the way the London police are. Mm. They were absolutely marvellous. Mm. But, you know, the thing that was so significant that's come up now to hit me is this whole thing about masks. Yeah, yeah. And when I see these people fuss about wearing a bit of cloth over their mouths and noses, I think, for help, get a life. Grow up. Mm. And I believe that if people had done that, we wouldn't have the plague that we're living through now. Now, yes. my gas mask that I had to wear from the age of, six and we had to carry them around in a little cardboard box i'd have them with us all the time now remember i was six right and this thing weighed almost five pounds it was all rubber i had it strapped on the back of my head and two kind of slots that were covered mm. with glass that i could see and then mm. a huge nozzle thing mm. anyway i could describe it mm. And to this day, I can't go into a tire store. Oh, the smell. Can't bear the smell of rubber. Wow. And I still have PTSD from those times. I mean, if I know there's going to be fireworks, I'm okay. But if I don't, that's machine guns. Mm. 
and I just freeze, which is why I work with veterans. Of course, we have a yes. lot of common. <laughs> yes, yes. So the thing was that I was sent away, well, I was left, and then I was sent away twice altogether, just for brief periods. And the third time I went, I stayed in a place called Cowley, which was just outside of Oxford, mm-hmm. where the university is. And the people did not want me. Mm. The people that we were put always thought that Londoners had fleas and that they were dirty. Mm. So we were humiliated right from the start. And this particular family, there was a husband and wife and two children. Nobody talked to me for four months. Wow. Not one word. Mm. And finally, I went back to London and I said, if you do this again, by this time I was nine, mm. if you do this again, I will run away. Yeah. So I stayed. I was there in the worst of the bombing. And then there was another aspect that my family, I come from a huge family. My mother was one of 13. Mm. Um, and they were very devout. And I wasn't. I questioned it, right? Mm. Six years old. (laughs) But what they did, miraculously, was they got involved with the kinder transport and getting refugees out of concentration camps. So as a little girl, because as you know, Tom, most people don't think children know. Right. So they would talk about all these horrors in the concentration camp right in front of me. And I would hear that. And then one day, a young man got off a bus off kinder transport. His name was George, and he came to live with us. He was 15. He became my brother. Mm. He would never, ever talk about it at all. Not a word. And And he was the kindest man I've ever known. George was in a concentration camp? Yes, Mm. as a child. Wow. So there are incredible people, um, a lot, mainly Dutch, that were so involved in rescuing children. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the Anne Frank story. Yes, yeah. And then there was a man, actually, who was born and raised in Highbridge, where I live. And he was some kind of ambassador. and he got thousands of people out of concentration camps. Mm. And he met with Hitler and Himmler and all of them. Wow. Uh, And somehow he managed by getting visas or something to get thousands. Mm. I've got a book about him. Thousands Mm. of people out of of, uh, Germany or Mm -hmm. or wherever they were. Um, And that's when I really learned about me. You know, we talk a lot about mentors. Yes. And I have several. But when I was eight and we were bombed out for the second time, I can remember being in the streets and starving, hungry, and nothing. We had nothing. Mm. And people took us in. Now, the rationing was very severe at that time. But these people took us in and shared the little they had with us. And I remember eight years old looking at these people and saying to my eight-year-old self, I want to be like that when I grow up. Mm. And I am. Yes. And then Dr. Victor Frankel. Yes. 
who I didn't hear about until I came to this country in 1968, turned my life around. He was in Buchenwald and then in Auschwitz. And he, if you read his book and search for meaning, it's all about choice. Mm-hmm. And the, my favorite story in there was when he was laying tracks in Auschwitz and it was bitterly cold. And you know how your skin will stick to steel. Yes. Um, so he had no gloves and his shoes were broken and he's laying these tracks in Auschwitz. And suddenly a little bird flew down and landed on the tracks and looked with her big brown eyes into his. And he chose to believe that was the soul and spirit of his wife. I remember that. He could have said that's just a bird, mm-hmm. but he didn't. And it sustained mm-hmm. him for another day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. his wife, father, father, brother, all perished. In yeah. Actually, no, she did end up in Auschwitz. Mm. Um, and he got a, he, the United States offered him a visa, but they wouldn't offer it to his wife. Mm. Oh, his family, my. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't come. And oh. you'll love this story, Tom. It will really appeal to you. Mm. Um, one day he was walking toward his father's house or what was left of it. And his father was sitting on an armchair, and in front there was a table with two pieces of marble on it. And uh, he said, where have you been? And his father said, I've been walking through all the synagogues that are just debris. Mm. And he said, well, what's that? And he said, well, I picked these two out of the last one I was in. And it was from the Ten Commandments that said, honor thy father and thy mother. Wow. And at that point, and I still get choked up. Mm. Thinking about that, at that point, he decided to stay. Wow. No matter what. He's my, my hero. He's absolutely my hero. He's one of my heroes as well, and you introduced me to him. Yes. That's how I know Victor Frankl, because oh. I know you. Yeah. It's been, been such an important part of my life. I, I want you to go back to something you said, and I want, want you to help our listeners connect it to today. Okay. Children know. Yes. You said children know. Yeah. So here we are with our children in our homes and for our listeners in our schools. And, and they know, they know what's happening. They, they see the pain yes. in, in the adults. They see the exhaustion in the adults. What, what thoughts do you have for the educators listening today to help them connect uh, with authenticity, with transparency to these children that know? Well, one example that I could give you that I thought was remarkable was I was invited to a school district where the sixth graders, they had studied the Holocaust. Mm. And they said to Lee, who you know, who's the Mm -hmm. counselor there, what happened to children in other countries? So she asked me if I would come in mm-hmm. and talk with them. And I was absolutely, to use my country's word, <laughs> gobsmacked at these children. <laughs> I had four different classes. And they were just amazing, these children, asking such questions that how could you possibly doubt that these children don't know? Sure, sure. They asked me questions adults didn't ask me. Mm. And then halfway through, I said to them, so what current literature do you think I relate to? Mm. 
Harry Potter. <laughs> and I happen to have um, Hermione's wand with me uh. and a scarf. I have a, I have a Hogwarts scarf. And I said to them, take the wand and silently say what you would like in your life. How would you like to be? Mm. And just pass it all around. Well, Tom, the letters I got from those children, mm. not, oh, dear Dr. K, thank you for being here. I got things like, it was so wonderful to actually hear someone who lived this and not mm -hmm. look at a video. And mm. another one, little girl said, I went to the cafeteria for lunch and I only took what I could eat. Oh. So, I mean, I've got these letters. I mean, is a, this is two years ago. Mm. Um, but I'll never forget those children. And I believe, see, I think teachers are under fire right now. They are. You've got these people, parents, who just deny everything. They don't want them to learn anything about mm -hmm. history. And my, my son Daniel's on the school board, and uh, he was taught it, it, they were under fire because of masks again. And he said, when the children come into school that come from maskless families, they ask for a mask. Mm, how about children. that? Yes. So when I say, and from personal experience, obviously as a child, that they know, I'm not kidding. You cannot lie to a child. Mm -hmm. You can't. Mm. And they can smell you out. <laughs> when I used to try and stop <laughs> things with my children, I get this really stupid look on my face. <laughs> I can't lie. It's awful. I cannot lie. It's such a terrible thing. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's but they would know. They would know. And I've always been very honest and open with my children. Um, it's fascinating because my older son, Colin, is an absolute World War II buff. Mm. In fact, he had a side business, which he called Churchill Limited. <laughs> and he and I have such conversations. He read my book. I think my oldest girl, I think the other said, but Michelle couldn't read it. She, would, she couldn't bear the thought of what her mother had gone through. She couldn't read it. But I believe that teachers need to be given more freedom. Mm. Now, I might be talking about things, Tom, <laughs> that can't happen. No, no, no. We need to hear this. We need to hear this. So, so uh, you mentioned freedom. Teachers yeah. need to be given more freedom. So, when I hear freedom, and and I, 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 what resonates in me is freedom is power. Now, I don't mean power over someone. I mean empowerment, which is yes. what your life has been about. Your life's work is empowering people. Yes. Absolutely. So, so tell us more about freedom, because I'm sure that resonates with our listeners right now. I'm sure it does, too, because that's what they're fighting for. I mean, look, it's history repeating itself now with all the lies and then yeah. the rise of Nazism over the world and, and skinheads and whatever the hell they are. Uh, and they have to be addressed and not pretend they're not there. I mean, January the 6th is such an example. Yes. When I saw that, I thought I would die. Mm. I mean, that's how terrified I was when I yeah. saw that. Oh, my God, not again. Yeah. I can remember when 9-11 happened, my son, Daniel, calling me and said, are you watching the television, Mom? And I said, no. 
So he said, put it on. And I put it on just as the, tra- the plane was going into the second building. And I remember sitting here frozen and saying, no, yeah. not again, not here. Yeah, yes. And I believe that teachers should be permitted to share history. Mm. Now, in my experience, and certainly in yours, I'm sure of it, because you and I have talked about taking this on the road to yeah. parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's the parents that cause the trouble, not the children. So, so let's go back to something you said just a few moments ago, this, this denial yes. on the part of, of a number of adults, on a number of parents, on a number of, of anyone. As, again, as somebody whose life has been devoted to, to human mental health, where is this denial coming from, today's denial? I believe that a lot of the parents want to protect their children. And I believe that they go over and above to the fact that it's nonsensical so that if a child falls outside and brazes its knee, that's a dilemma. Mm. They're not taught about life. Mm -hmm. They're not taught that life is up and life is down. Mm -hmm. And I raised all my children to be independent, and they, they still are. Mm. which means they don't call me as often as they should. (laughs) (laughs) So damn independent. (laughs) That was wonderful. That was wonderful. But I I absolutely (laughs) believe that. You know what, Tom? I think the bottom line is that parents today are afraid. Okay. Okay. We just don't know what's going to happen politically or any way at all, and they are afraid. And then you've got people who think that they can deal with this with personal violence. Well, I was raised in violence. It doesn't work. Yeah. It does not work. With children, I just believe we need to listen to them more. Mm-hmm. And I think teachers should be given the freedom to do that, to listen. Mm-hmm. Because they are so wise, you know, the way that they, these children interpreted whatever it was that I said. And one thing really, really bothered me. There was one boy that wrote me a letter and said, well, it was a good thing to hear something, uh, something else about Jews. Than Jews. And I thought, wow. Wow. Well, where do you think he got that? From? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So I do hold parents accountable. Mm. Really do. Mm. And there are some marvelous parents out there and absolutely. absolutely phenomenal. But then you've got this situation that is so afraid of what you talked about, empowerment, mm-hmm. that they look at things as helpless. Helplessness yeah. is not powerlessness. It's two different things. So it, do we have any possibility as therapists, as mental health workers, as educators, w- what is our what is our, um, where, where do we step forward to help people deal with this fear that's fueling the denial? Well, the trouble is that when people are in denial, they're in denial. So they don't think okay. anything is wrong. Okay. So when we could offer lectures, workshops, whatever, and if they don't want to know, they don't want to know. Mm-hmm. And of course, the communication system is so different now from when I was in charge. No phones or computers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I tend to be a bit of a technophobe myself. Mm-hmm. And that's me being just awkward. But anyway, 
the thing is that children, all right, let me give another example. When we were in the war and we would go to a, a movie theater, so two or three days after the event, we would know about what was bombed, what was going on. Today, these children know what's going to happen almost before it happens. Yeah, even as it's happening in some cases. Exactly. And yeah. so that, I think, um, I'm not a critic of technology, but I do remember listening to the man who invented the PC and someone said, what would you do? Anything different? He said, yeah, I take them out of every school there is. Mm. Wow. That was what he said. Mm. But the thing is, look, in kindergarten, they know how to use a PC. They know yeah. how to use yeah. a phone. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But it's done something to human connection, I think. And that's where teachers need to step in. That's one of my greatest concerns is, is although I am not technologically comfortable, I do honor it as a tool. Yes. And, and you know, now the genie is out of the bottle. But what concerns me is we are losing relationship skills. We're losing human connection. I, I mean, really valid human connection, looking at another beautiful human being and seeing their face and, 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 and picking up all the nonverbals. It's it's so true. And, you know, um, I still work in addictions and I work with veterans, cancer patients, whatever. But my main work is grief. Mm. My main work is bereavement. And I'm telling you, just lately, it's been a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and I hold a lot of people accountable for this ridiculous secrecy. Yeah. You know what happens when people keep secrets? I, it's like poison. Mm-hmm. And me being a bastard child who didn't know she was until she was 21. Wow. Yep. I felt that. I felt I was different and didn't know why. Mm. Because the family kept the secret. So not only do I come from a family of secrets, I am the secret. So you felt the secret. D- d- yes. Dig more into that for, for us. You felt it. Yes. I felt it that people were avoiding me. People mm. were, when I asked questions, I would never get a straight answer. And as a child, as I said, I knew. I knew all about Hitler. I knew all about the Luftwaffe. And I knew all about the Reichstag as a little girl mm. because it was right there. And did I, was I injured with that? No. I was injured with the secrets and Mm. the lies. Mm. And I think children can smell them out. I have have such faith in children. Yes. They're given an opportunity. They can change this world. I know they can. So you just said something so important for me as a listener. When we keep secrets... Mm-hmm. Our children know it. They, they feel it to use your life experience. They feel it. It's a visceral thing, yes? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can't hide from a child. At least I've never been able to. Mm. They catch me out every time. Mm. I, even my grandchildren, who are now adults, and it's just astonishing that they have this presence. That makes you, it makes me feel hopeful. 
Mm. Very optimistic in, in, in spite of everything. But I will be more optimistic if they would release the chains around teachers. Yes. Because I think teachers are muted. They have to be so careful at what they say. And, you know, some of these organizations, they grow and, and they get out of hand. Let me talk just briefly about the program a long time ago was Don't Touch, right? right. Remember the Don't Touch? So it's got so ridiculous now that if a child falls and hurts themselves, you're not allowed to pick them up. Yeah, yeah. So it's got to be moderated. Mm-hmm. It was great when it started, and mm-hmm. it still is, but it's got to be moderated. And it's the same with school boards. Why are they political? Mm. Why? I don't understand. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, I hear the battles that go on where Daniel is mm-hmm. because of the opposition with politics. Well, what's that got to do with children? Right. right. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be exposed in training to go and train teachers on how to deal with this. Um, the school boards, they really, really need to be educated. Yes. They really do. Particularly in the areas of bullying and history. You know, you and I feel very strongly about bullying. Mm-hmm. And it's a powerful subject. And, you know, it, it reminds me to, I just wrote something on my Facebook page about grief. Yes, I read it. What Beautiful. Not, what not to do. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with this. Don't lie. Don't keep secrets of a child as a genuine question about something that's troubling them about the world or history or whatever, answer it. Yes. Answer it. Be honest, be truthful. It has to be. I don't know if it's going to be. I just know it has to be. And Mm. the same way that I wrote in that piece was that people often phone me when there's been a tragedy and say, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I think the teachers are in that position right now. What they do I are. Do? So, so help us, help us dig into that a bit. Because, for example, uh, yesterday I got a phone call from Ohio, and uh, the teacher is uh, sharing with me that uh, they went back into school live and in person because the parents demanded it even though the health professionals in the area said it's not safe yet. And so now, uh, because of the illness, the the Omicron uh, goes so fast, uh, there are actually only two children healthy enough to attend class. So here we have a teacher with two children in class. Nobody else can be in school because they they are, uh, you know, they have the virus. So grief. Yes. Children are grieving. Oh. Adults are grieving. Yes. And and your 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 wisdom on grief is uh is my go-to. The thing you wrote on Facebook yesterday today was exquisite. Thank you. What what are what are some things that you can share with our friends who are in education around the thoughts of grief particularly in this time knowing that Many children and many educators have lost loved ones. And the thing that they need to be educated in is it's not just death. 
grief is loss. Mm -hmm. Whether they move to another school, and in my case, coming to another country, I was grieving for two years. Mm. And I know what that's like. But children, you see, the, the trouble is that children feel people aren't listening to them. Mm -hmm. I, I just read a book written by a journalist. I can't remember the name right now. It was about children who were involved in playground shootings. Yeah. Young children. And all they would say was, they don't listen. Now, that's one of my greatest skills. I'm a listener. Mm -hmm. And it's worked very well for people who just need to vent, to talk about whatever they're feeling, um, even though maybe there won't be an answer. For example, whenever I see a bereaved parent, the first thing I say to them is there's two things. I can't bring your child back. Mm. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't take away, I wouldn't even try to take away your pain because right. that would be insulting. Mm -hmm. And I believe that because oh, yes. pain is love. Mm. Oh, we'll say that again. Pain is love. That is beautiful. It really is. And the thing is that these children have all these feelings and there's nowhere to put them. Because the parents and people, not all of them, I must say that, are in denial. Mm. And they don't want to talk about anything nasty mm. to their children. So their children are brought up in fairyland. And they have no idea when they get out into the world, they're going to go and work for people who are not going to put up with that behavior. Mm -hmm. And so it's like re-educating. Um, and what you, your point about communication is very relevant. You know, I, I just look when I go out to eat and there's four young people sitting at a table with their cell phones. They're right across from each other. And we have a rule, even my grandchildren are adults now. You come out to eat with me, you turn the damn phone off. Or I will leave and they know I will leave. I love it. I love it. Oh, it's, it's absurd. It is. It really, really is. And it's sad. <sighs> Because oh. that's grief. They've lost a valuable thing that you and I have. That's mm. communication. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as I, I, you know, I would love to spend all evening talking with you, my dear friend. And, uh, and yes, we, we need to get back into schools together. Yes, we do. But as we end, I'd like you to share one or two thoughts, uh, knowing that schools still have at least uh, the rest of this school year, ongoing challenge in front of them. What would you offer for the health and wellness of the educator? What what might oh. what did they need to do for themselves right now? You know, a lot of them are facing burnout. Mm -hmm. You know that, and they have to be aware of that. I've had burnout two and a half times. I caught myself last time. <laughs> <laughs> And I had to learn that I had to take care of me. Mm. So I went straight into therapy, didn't mess mm. around, straight into therapy um, to take a look at what was going on. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but I believe that when somebody is in burnout, there's a lot of stuff down there they've never addressed. Mm. And that could be addressed and turned around. Mm. The other thing is, and I sound like a rebel, but then I am. So that's why I sound mm -hmm. like a rebel. 
I'd love to see teachers get together and form some kind of union thing. Not, I'm not talking about a trade union, but some kind of togetherness. Yeah. Actually can go to PTA, home school, and demand that the parents listen. Beautiful. They have to take care of themselves. They have to have someone in their life that they can just pick up the phone and mm. whatever, whatever mm. comes out. I still do that. I have my one. I don't know if you can see this, Tom, and I will read it. But a friend of mine gave me this for Christmas. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I love it. Yeah, they told me I couldn't, so I did. And one of the things I gained from being a child of war is I developed a watch me personality. Mm. That you tell me I can't do something, and watch me. Watch me, yeah. And I would like to see children do that, not in a de- negative way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but to look about their skills and what they can do and their creativity and all these wonderful things that teachers, unfortunately, have been put in a position only to deal with negatives right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, no wonder they're burned out. Mm. Even my doctor, who's only in his late 40s, has left the medical profession. Oh, my goodness. Mm. And that was mainly because of insurance and all that. Sure, stuff. sure. It's interesting when when you said watch me and and encouraging our children to have that attitude. I immediately went back to Frankel. Yes, choice. Choice. What will my choice be today? Mm-hmm. And it is one day at a time. Is that exactly exactly? Really? So for for all of my educational friends who are listening, how can they find you? I have a, a website which is just uh, www.ibonkaywisdom.com. So that's Y-V-O-N-N-E-K-A-Y-E-W-I-S-D-O-M.com. And it has all my information, how to connect me. It's got all my podcasts, of which you are one. Yes, I'm yes, thrilled. Um, <laughs> and so everything, they can pick up the phone, they can email me, whatever. Whatever. And they can find your writing there too. Am I correct? Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. You really need to be listening to Yvonne, listen to her podcast program, absolutely read what she's written. Thank you, my dear friend. I love you very much. And I love you and your wonderful family. Oh, and I hope to see the princess very soon. Very soon. Very soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.